going to do the most important thing we do at Soul Revival Church, which is hear from God's word. And we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 17, starting at verse 1. A prophecy against Damascus. See, Damascus will be no longer a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora will be deserted and left to the flocks, which were laid down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when the reapers harvest the standing grain, gathering the grain in their arms, as when someone gleans heads of grain in the valley of Ephraim. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God, your saviour. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though on the day you set them out, you make them grow, and on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in that day of disease and incurable pain. Uh, good everyone. My name's Tim, I'm the children's pastor here at Soul Revival, and um, my notes will make sense real soon. Um, we just read um, Isaiah 17, we're in the middle section of Isaiah at the moment, and uh, we're going to be thinking about that passage, but instead of just uh, 17, I'm also going to be looking uh, from kind of the end of 14 through to the end of 18, and so if you've got your Bibles, it'd be great to have them in front of you. Um, I was going to start by talking about Commitments Week. Um, but the boys have kind of done that, so I'm going to skip the first couple of pages, which is awesome. Saves us heaps of time. Um, no, no, it's great, because what I was going to say, actually, was that when I came on Tuesday night, I was at the same group with Ethan and Tobias and Makai and a number of others, and there were uh, a couple of high school guys, a couple of young adults, a couple of uh, not as young adults, um, and many others. And as we shared stories about what it was like to be in high school, be a Christian in high school, and for those of us who are adults now to be Christians uh, in the workplace, what was almost universally true was that it was difficult sometimes. It was hard. And it's easy to understand, right? Because actually most of us don't go to school and we're not in workplaces. We don't live in streets and suburbs that are predominantly Christian. Uh, even if you go to a Christian school like I did, um, it can be difficult for, I think, a slightly different reason, because actually when you go to a Christian school and you're trying to be a Christian there, it's, uh, it's difficult not just to be the vanilla beige Christian that kind of blends into the furniture, but actually to be a, a passionate, vocal, enthusiastic follower of Jesus. Uh, certainly that was my experience. 
But for most of us, uh, we don't have even that experience. Most of us are at schools, we're at workplaces, universities, we're in our online digital spaces, uh, and we don't have a majority Christian presence in that world. We spend time uh, in the media, we spend time with our friends and our family, we listen to the voices around us in the digital space, we consume news and current affairs, and we see people living in the world, and it's clear that as Christians, we are the minority. And what is particularly difficult about this is that the world outside the Christian church, outside of our experience of being a follower of Jesus, is so different to the life that we are called to live as Christians. Now, if we go back a generation or two, this wasn't always the case. I was chatting with um, Pete Crawshaw just before. Uh, I like to think of it as a Venn diagram. I need my clicker. Here we go. Um, Go back a generation or two, and I think of it like a Venn diagram. The, The world of being a disciple of Jesus and the world of being Australian kind of had a fairly significant overlap It's not that Australia was a Christian nation. I don't think that's ever really been the case. But to put it simply, the definition of a good Christian and the definition of a good Australian had some fairly close alignment with each other. The majority of people you'd bump into at school, at work, in the street, uh, would in some way identify as Christian. Uh, They probably had some affiliation with church, even if they only went there for Christmas and Easter. Most families sent their kids to Sunday school. Pete was telling me that in the late... 60s, is that right? I don't know where Pete is. In the late 60s, Guy Anglican had about 500 kids every week going to Sunday school. And at Kingsgrove, they were getting 1,000 kids a week going to Sunday school. Nearly every kid was in uh, Christian SRE at schools. And if you ask people what they thought about beliefs and morality, it would pretty much line up with what Christians said about their beliefs and their morality. One particular striking anecdote. In 1959, Billy Graham came out. He was a a Christian evangelist from America. And three million people in Australia went to see Billy Graham talk about Jesus. That was a third of Australia's population at the time. Can you imagine a third of Australia's population today going to hear a gospel presentation by an evangelist? You can't really, can you? Because our world is just so different. There's this lot of overlap between the world and between being Christian go back a number of generations ago. And in some ways, when that is the case, it's often a lot easier to actually be a Christian. Um, Social psychologists call it the plausibility structures. The plausibility structures. This is the idea that the culture, the people, the institutions that are around you make believing in Jesus in some ways a bit easier to do because it's kind of reinforced in some way by the world outside the church. Now, the problem we have in 2021 is that, uh, and it's been going on for a number of decades now, is that those two circles are starting to pull apart. The world of the church, Christian belief, Christian moral teaching, the Christian way of life, is now distinctively and drastically different to the life that we are called to live as disciples of Jesus. The plausibility structures of our culture, our friendship circles, the media we consume, is no longer supportive of that confident faith in Jesus. Instead of uh, supporting a confident faith in Jesus, the plausibility structures that we live amongst outside the church encourage us to ditch our faith, to live for the world, and to run far away from Christ and his church. 
Uh, there was a, stu a study of Australian teenagers that was published just two years ago. Um, and I think this is kind of indicative of where our culture is and certainly where it is going. Um, there's, oh, there's Billy Graham. Uh, that's, I don't know if that was Sydney or Melbourne, but big crowds. Um, oh, and there's us pulling apart. There we go. I'm a few slides behind. Okay. Here we go. Uh, here were some interesting stats. I get excited by statistics, so I hope this isn't too boring. But this study, published just two years ago, showed that 52% of teenagers said that they have no identity with religion whatsoever. No identification with um, any, any religion of any variety. Uh, and 12% identified in some way with a Protestant church. You double that if you want to add in uh, the Roman Catholic church as well. So about 12% Catholic, about 12% uh, Protestant Christians. Uh, you go on, 37% of the teenagers said they had some sort of belief in God. 30% said, well, I don't know if I'd label it God, but I believe that there's something out there that is a higher power. And almost a quarter said, no, they have absolutely no belief in God or a higher power at all. Uh, in contrast, 50% of the, of the Christian, uh, sorry, 50% of the teenagers, half the teenagers were surveyed, believe in karma, almost a third believe in reincarnation, and 20% believe in astrology. They believe that truth can be found in the astrology pages. That's more, pe more teenagers believe in astrology than identify as Protestant Christians. Now, there's some interesting things that come out of this. One thing is that it makes teenagers today really open towards other faiths. So here's some interesting things. 88% of the teenagers in this study said that all religious groups should be free to practice their religion in any way they want. So they're really generous, really open to anyone just doing whatever they want. 91% said the actual, the weird makeup that we have in Australia, where there's lots of different faith beliefs and non-beliefs, is actually a good thing for Australia. 91% said this is a good thing, that we have all of this diversity. I think they're kind of encouraging. But 50% said that those who have very strong beliefs tend towards being intolerant. So what does this mean? Teenagers, crew who are in high school, this is what it means for you guys. As you go to school, chances are most of your non-Christian mates, Tobias and others, will, are probably totally cool with you believing whatever you like as long as it doesn't impact them. But about half of your mates as you go to school will think that you're intolerant if you take Jesus too seriously. That's a hard world to live in, isn't it? It's a hard world for a teenager. It's a hard world for us as adults as we enter the workplace and the numbers will be kind of similar. Now, what's all this got to do with Isaiah? Well, I want to take a bit of a time to set that cultural scene for us because I think that actually the culture of Isaiah and what I'll get to at the end, the culture of Revelation as well in the first century AD, both of these cultures in the Old and the New Testament bear striking similarities to our culture today. Um, and I think that's important. It's important for us to recognise that we are not the first generation of Christians to grow up in a culture that doesn't understand us, that disagrees fundamentally with our beliefs. Our non-faith friends and families and community hold very little in common with many of us in terms of God, faith, religion, ethics, morality, sexuality, and a whole host of other really important topics. 
Our culture, our friends, and sometimes even our families will disagree with us much of the time. And so the question for tonight is, how do we live confidently as disciples of Jesus when we're in a minority world? How do we live confidently as followers of Jesus when we are the minority in this world? So we're going to head back into Isaiah. As I said, it's great to have it open in front of you if you can. Now this, refer- this section, uh, end of chapter 14 through the end of chapter 18, has a whole lot of references to different tribes and nations that were around in the ancient world, which would have made a lot of sense to the original hearers of Isaiah, but could be a bit tricky for us. So I'm going to... Um, trying to get some help to act this out. Um, we're going to got, here's a map here that will help us a little bit. Um, Tobias, do you mind coming out again for me? Um, Bev, can you come out for me? Thanks. Uh, David, can you come out for me? Uh, Katie, do you mind coming out for me? Uh, Tyson um, and Monica would be great. Excellent. All right. These guys are going to help us understand the ancient world in its context, right? Okay, so uh, firstly, we've got David. David, you're Assyria. All right. (laughs) Fantastic. You are the mighty empire to the north. If you could just kind of shuffle that one right, right near Nick would be awesome. Excellent. You're the big bad empire of the nation to the north. Um, Just off the top of our map here, you can't quite see it. You are crushing and conquering all the nations that get in your way. However, your king has just died. So at this particular moment in time, you're a little bit vulnerable, uh, a little bit unstable in the short term. But that's where you're placed at this particular moment in time. All right. Um, Okay, what have we got now? We need uh, Moab. Moab. Here we go. Katie, you're going to be Moab. There we go. Uh, you're the purple kingdom, if you can see our map here, just to the east of the, the Red Sea. Uh, sorry, Dead Sea, that should be. Uh, you've heard that the Assyrian king over here has died and you're ready to strike early. So you team up with your mate, the Philistines. Thanks, Bev. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I can get them on stage. But yeah, come up on, come up here, Dave. You want to come on the end? end. No, you're the Philistines, Bev. Up here, up you come. You got your mates, uh, Moab. If you can see the map, the Philistines are the ones in the red over on the coast. So great coastal views, great surf, great sand. Um, that's where you're at. But they're not nice people. They're not particularly nice people. No. Um, <laughs> You like your mate Moab's plan. You also agree that because Assyria is a little bit vulnerable at the moment, you think it's worth teaming up and going and attacking early. Now, uh, we've got Damascus. All right. Mon, you're Damascus. There we go. Uh, Damascus, you're the, uh, you're the greenish kingdom there to the north. Uh, you've got good friends with Ammon there in the orange, and you're sort of on and off again friends with Israel there in the middle. Uh, You're not particularly excited about war, uh, but you're also very aware, oh no, uh, you're also particularly aware that you border Assyria. So Assyria, who has these global expansion plans, 
uh, to go and conquer the known world, if anything happens, you're kind of in the firing line. So even though you don't necessarily want war, you kind of have to be prepared for it anyway. Uh, and your mates, Ammon, and your on and off again friendship with Israel may help you a little bit there. Right. Now we've got um, Egypt uh, and Cush. These are the kind of the kingdoms to the south. We can't quite see them there on the map. That's you, Tyson. Thanks, mate. Egypt and Cush. Uh, you're not particularly keen for a fight, but Egypt does like to think of itself as the political powerhouse of the ancient Near East. And so they don't particularly like that Assyria over here is flexing its muscles and creating this kind of expansionist empire. So the good thing about Egypt is that they've got a pretty strong army down the south, which should act as a nice good kind of a stopgate to Assyria getting too far. You're good at defence, uh, but you're not super excited about going in for a fight if you don't have to. Now, finally, we have Judah in the middle. Come on, stand with me, Tobias. All right. Judah in the middle. Judah is God's faithful people. They are striving to live God's way, striving to follow his commands. But you're living, as you can see, in the midst of all these warring kingdoms. Uh, you are tempted, and you look around, you're not quite sure what to do. Where should you put your faith? Where should you put your allegiance? But the most important thing that you've got, Judah, is this place, the temple. If you can see that. The temple sat on the Mount of Jerusalem. And this was the place where God said he would set up his kingdom, his place. In the temple, behind a thick curtain, was a place called the Holy of Holies. And even though the ancient Israelites, they knew that God was the God of the entire cosmos. But when they thought about where does God dwell with us in his people, they thought about the temple. They thought about Jerusalem. And in their poetic language, they called it Zion. Zion was the place where God dwelt. So you've got that at the heart of your nation, Judah. But at the same time, what good is a stone building in a thick curtain when you've got the Assyrian army flexing its muscles to the north? You've got a mighty nation, Egypt, to the south. You've got Moab and Philistia, neither of whom particularly like you and like to fight wars with you all the time. And you've got your on-again, on off-again relationship with Damascus over here. There's lots going on. What happens? Well, here's what happens. Moab and Philistia, they decide to strike first, strike hard, strike at the moment of weakness. And it does not go well for them. Isaiah sees this all happening in front of him. He gets a vision from God and he has words to speak to Moab and Philistia to warn them about going up against Assyria. And here is what Isaiah says in chapter 14 to uh, the Philistines. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that you've struck, Assyria, over here, is broken. You think the king's dead, you think they're vulnerable, you're going to go and attack them. No, beware. Because the root of that snake, Assyria, will spring up as a viper. Melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke is coming from the north. And in that army, that mighty Assyrian army, there is not a strangler, a straggler. <laughs> There's not a straggler in its ranks. They're all equipped. They've all got power. They're coming 
and you will be crushed. Moab, what about you? Your idea to start with. Moab is ruined, ruined, destroyed in a night. Every head is shaved, every beard cut off. In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the roofs and in public squares they all wail. Death, destruction, humiliation everywhere. Philistia and Moab thought they could strike Assyria while Assyria was leaderless, but they could not. (laughs) But it wasn't just Assyria's brute strength that defeats them. Because actually when you read the wider context of Isaiah, you hear from the other prophets and what's going on. It's not just that Assyria is stronger. It's actually that God is choosing to use the Assyrians to defeat Israel's enemies. Moab and Philistia, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, these have all at different times waged war against God's people. And God is saying, they are mine. And you can't fight my people and expect to, re- to, to go consequence-free. And so God is using the Assyrians to crush these other countries. But God is also going to use Assyria to punish his own people if they continue in rebellion against him. Now, in these words of judgment, there's something really interesting that also goes on. As Isaiah is speaking these words of judgment to Philistia and to Moab, he says this, What answer should be given to the envoys of that nation, Philistia? This message. Tell the Philistines this message. The Lord has established Zion. And in Zion, his afflicted people will find refuge. And then to Moab, Moab, listen up. Send lambs as a tribute. Send presents, gifts to Judah, to the rule of that land across the desert, to the Mount of Zion. And Zion, hide those fugitives. The people who come to you, from Philistia and Moab, the people who are running away from Assyria, hide them. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destruction. To both Moab and Philistia, God says, I am sending Assyria to destroy you. But look to Zion. Go to Zion. Go to my people. Go to my temple. Go to my house, the place where I dwell. Because with my people and with me, you will find refuge, you will find safety. In Zion, there is life. In Zion, there is hope. In Zion is salvation. God gives these words of judgment to his enemies. But even in the midst of that word of judgment, he gives them a word of hope. There is promise if you just turn your eyes to Zion. There you will be saved. Now, if you spend any time around Christians, you probably know where this is going. But we've still got Damascus and Egypt to go. Damascus and his mate Israel, well, Isaiah has this to say to them. Oh, no. Could we go to the next slide? Excellent. See Damascus? Damascus? Where are you? Damascus? Oh, there's Damascus? Damascus. You will no longer be a city. You will become a heap of ruins. 
The cities will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. All the cows and the sheep and the goats and everything will just kind of chill out because there's no humans around at all because they've all been completely wiped out. And uh, to your on-again, off-again mates, Israel, on that day, the glory of Jacob will fade and the fat on his body will waste away. But yet again, in the midst of judgment, there is a word of hope and promise. Hey, Damascus, listen up. In that day, people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Where's the Holy One of Israel? In Zion. This is where the Holy One. Turn your eyes here, Damascus, and there is hope for you too. And Egypt, woe to the land of whirring wings. I don't know what that means. Uh, Before the harvest... When the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives, cut down and take away the spreading branches. I think the idea here is that the fruit is almost ready for harvest, is almost ready to cut down the good grapes and everything's going to be completely destroyed. You think life is good at the moment, Egypt, you powerhouse to the south, but actually it's not. Word of warning and destruction to you again. God will use the Assyrians to wipe the smirk off the face of Egypt. But once again, in the middle of judgment, comes hope. Hey, Egypt, listen up. At that time, gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty. Gifts will be brought where? Mount Zion. The place of the name of the Lord Almighty. To the nations all around Judah here, God is giving these warnings. You have actively worked against my people. You and your military and political strength. You've got this cultural supremacy. My people are the minority culture in the ancient Near East. But they are mine and they belong to me. And if you also turn to me and turn to Zion, set your eyes on Zion, set your eyes to the holy hill, to the place where I dwell, you too can be saved. You too can come into my kingdom. You too can become part of my people. But in the midst of all of this, there's also a subtle word here to Judah, to God's own people. This is explicit elsewhere in Isaiah, but it's, it's subtle here, but this is what Isaiah is saying to God's own people. He's saying, here you sit in the midst of all this cultural otherness. You're the minority, You sit amongst all these other mighty powers. Maybe look to Egypt. Maybe they will save you. Maybe forming a military allegiance with them. Maybe that's how you feed the Assyrians. But God says, no, no, no. Don't look outside of Zion. Don't look outside. You are my people. Even Judah, you need to remember, keep your eyes on Zion. I am your God. I am your salvation. Look to me and you will not be let down. Thanks, guys. You can put those down on the ground. Grab a seat. Now, fascinating history lesson, Tim. What's that got to do with us in Kirui in 2021? Excellent question. Excellent segue. We don't even have to leave Isaiah to find out what God is saying to us in Kirui in 2021. See, we've already seen this verse, which was given to Moab. Send Moab, hey, send lambs, send tribute to Zion. 
And Zion, hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugee. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with us. Be their shelter from the destroyer. And here's the very next verse. The oppressor will come to an end. And destruction will cease. And in love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Who is this man who sets up his throne in love? Who is this one from the house of David who's seeking justice and speeds the cause of righteousness? Sunday school answer? It's Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. In the ancient Near East, the nations were called to set their eyes on Zion for their hope, for their deliverance. And the people of God were called not to forsake Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God, not to look to the wider, bigger world, to be seduced by the cultural, political, the military might of the nations around them. It's tempting to find your joy, your fulfilment, your hope outside of Zion particularly when you're the minority. But actually, those other cultures and those other nations could not save them. And as God's people in 2021, the same is true for us. It's not all that easy to follow Jesus in a world that renounces him. It's not easy being a Christian when being a Christian is not only different and weird, but when you may get criticised even openly mocked, where you might lose cultural, political or relational privilege. When you are clearly in the minority, when nearly every voice you hear at school or at work, in your community or in your online spaces, they don't share your religious, your theological, your moral, your ethical convictions. It's easy to look outside the people of God for your identity, your sense of self, your purpose, your salvation. But Isaiah reminds us that we will not find it there. As Christians in 2021, we don't look to a temple mount at Zion. We look to the one who sits on the throne of righteousness, justice and truth. We look to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and in him we find salvation. And, and this could be a whole other sermon, It is here in the gathering of God's people on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, West Ride, Kirawee, Woolaware, Yarrawarra. It's here that we encourage each other. We find the confidence, the encouragement. It is here amongst God's people that we have the plausibility structures to continue in our faith and our walk with Jesus. I want to finish with the words of John in Revelation. Because as I said... Isaiah's world almost 3,000 years ago, John's world in Revelation almost 2,000 years ago, and our world today in 2021 in the middle of Sydney bear striking resemblances. John, like us, lived in a world that was opposed to Jesus. Christians were very much the persecuted minority. And John has his vision of Jesus, the risen Lord Christ, speaking to him, seated on his throne, that one that's established in love, And he encourages John and his fellow Christians to keep going, to persevere, 
to not give in to the pressures of the outside world, to stick with Jesus and to overcome. The risen Christ gives John seven short encouragements hidden within those seven letters at the start of Revelation, if you're familiar with Revelation. But I've just pulled out these little encouragements to those who have victory, for those who overcome, for those who stick with Jesus, even when you're the minority, even when it's hard. Here's the encouragement to keep going. Jesus says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who is victorious, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. To the one who is victorious, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. To the one who is victorious, you will be dressed in white. I will never blot out that in the name of that person from the book of life. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. It's hard to be a Christian in high school, at work, amongst your non-faith family, on your online communities. It can be tough. But Isaiah's encouragement to us is that being the minority doesn't mean you're on the wrong team. Certainly not if that minority means that you are sticking with the risen Lord Christ, the King of the cosmos. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Family, set your eyes on Zion. Stick with Jesus. And while we're at it, let's make sure that our non-Christian friends and family also know that this king, this community of his people here at Soul Revival, is also where they will find the true way, the true truth, the true life. Here's my questions to take out to dinner. Question number one. Where do you find it hard to live confidently for Jesus? Where do you find it hard to live confidently for Jesus? It might be a physical space like school or work. It might be your family. It might be a digital space where you're interacting with others online. That's the space you find it hard to be confident. Where do you find it hard to live confidently for Jesus? That's number one. Number two, why? Have a think. Talk with a person that you're having dinner with. Why is it that that particular space makes it difficult for you to live as a Christian? Is it the other people that were there? Is it the voices? Is it what they say, the ideas that they have, their worldviews, their ethics, their morals? What is it that makes it difficult for you? Question number three, how can the person sitting next to you at dinner, how can they encourage you to live boldly in that place? Let me pray. Dear Father God, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you that, Jesus, that you did conquer sin and death by dying on the cross and rising again and you were seated on your throne, that throne established in love, that throne that is the foundation of all righteousness and justice and truth, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, you know how hard it is for us in the middle of Sydney in 2021 
to live as disciples. There is so much going on that is pulling us the other way. We thank you for our family here at church. We thank you for the encouragement we can be. We thank you that you are always with us by your spirit. Father, help us to be confident, to live boldly as your disciples, even though we live in a minority world. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.